And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, February 21st, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, fresh whistleblower protection legislation stalls amid congressional chaos. Plus, identification of long-lost military service members gets a boost from new science. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Department of Homeland Security is going after some of the most in-demand tech talent in the world. DHS plans to build out a cadre of 50 artificial intelligence experts in the coming year. The agency's lead AI official is confident it can meet that goal. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has more. And so a 50-person team for AI, what is their plan, Justin, at Homeland Security? Yeah, well, you know, if you look at President Joe Biden's artificial intelligence executive order, DHS has mentioned uh, 37 separate times. So they have a pretty big set of tasks under that EO. And what they want to do is build out a 50-person AI core that's modeled actually after the U.S. Digital Service. Eric Heisen is DHS's chief information officer and chief AI officer. He was actually among the founding members of DHS's digital service team a decade ago. He says modeling the AI core after the digital service will allow DHS to have kind of the central pool of technology talent that it can bring in quickly, perhaps more quickly than the traditional government hiring process. Heisen spoke at an event hosted by the Homeland Security and Defense Forum earlier this month, and I caught up with him afterward to talk about DHS's plan. We are taking a very aggressive recruitment approach with partnering with organizations all around the country and also rethinking the hiring process. Our Chico has been really outstanding at leveraging OPM's new direct hire authority and setting up a process that is going to move quickly and let us do the the right reviews to get these in-demand candidates through the process as quickly as we can. Now, artificial intelligence consists of many, many different skills. What is DHS specifically looking for, Justin? Yeah, if you look at DHS's job posting, and they have one catch-all job posting for all 50 of these positions, they're looking at folks who have advanced technical or policy knowledge in AI and machine learning, uh, folks who have experience integrating technology products with neural networks, high-performance computing networks, advanced data science technologies, and then also people who have led cross-functional teams, uh, including designers, product managers, data scientists again, or software engineers. Tyson says they're looking for some pretty senior-level talent. These people will be paid at the GS-15 level, which has a salary range of up to before locality pay and things like that kick in. And no prior government experience or an active security clearance is necessary. So they're really reaching out to beyond kind of the traditional government folks here to perhaps the Silicon Valleys of the world. And what do they expect these people to do once they get on board? They'll initially join Heisen's office at DHS headquarters. And and then in his words, they'll be farmed out across the department as needed. Again, kind of similar to the U.S. Digital Service. They'll work on discrete DHS missions, um, including countering fentanyl, combating child sexual exploitation and abuse, uh, delivering immigration services, 
Cybersecurity is another big one. DHS has been tasked with setting cybersecurity standards under the AI executive order and even doing things like customer service streamlining disaster grants with FEMA. So there's a whole range of work that these people could eventually be working on. What about other agencies in the private sector? Everybody's recruiting this type of talent. You would think a U.S. digital service type thing would be centered, say, at the General Services Administration, which is where U.S. digital services actually is, I believe. What's their selling proposition, I guess, to recruit people even at those salaries? Yeah, I asked Tyson that. I mean, obviously, DHS is competing with every organization in the world right now that deals in any kind of technology. Everyone wants an AI expert or a cadre of AI experts on their team. Tyson, of course, said it's an in-demand skill set, but he thinks that DHS can really offer a unique selling point for a lot of these candidates. It's an in-demand skill set, but when you think about the opportunity that you have at DHS, where else are you going to go where you can not just get to work on cutting-edge technology, but you can apply it to missions uh, like combating the flow of fentanyl into the United States, like uh, combating child sexual abuse and exploitation, uh, making it easier to become an American citizen. Uh, these are just such critical activities and we think that the, the appeal of the mission is going to be huge combined with the, the aggressive recruiting work that we're putting forward. Well, I guess it's going to take more than simply putting a prompt into a chat GPT to come up with how do you solve fentanyl. And so they're going to need some pretty decent, detailed expertise. How is DHS using AI now? if they are. Yeah, there's different flavors of AI, of course. Uh, DHS says it's already using machine learning models to actually detect fentanyl shipments at border checkpoints. So that's clearly one area they want to build out on. Uh, they're also using machine learning models to identify perpetrators in child sexual abuse cases. And FEMA is using machine learning to evaluate photos of uh, damaged homes and buildings when there's a natural disaster to help evaluate that, that actual damage. And then there's also the large language models in ChatGPT that have kind of sparked this new wave of AI fervor. In October, DHS issued a policy on the use of commercial generative AI. It allows employees to use these tools as long as they follow certain rules, like not putting any protected DHS data into those systems. And, you know, Heisen says they're already starting to think more deeply about how they use these tools. He is one of those employees who started using large language models. He, a couple of weeks ago, said he put the big Senate supplemental bill into a large language model to see, hey, what do I have to do if this thing gets passed? How much funding is in here? Here's what he said. Well, first, it was such a long bill that it took some massaging to get it into the model. But the value that you see in interacting with things that we do every day at DHS, like thinking about legislation, is really tremendous. So I think we're seeing more and more of our employees understanding what value it can play and can bring and how they might leverage it. And did he also talk about employees need to know how to prompt a large language model? Because what you ask it and the way you ask it and maybe ask it in an iterative fashion will get you much closer to the output you want than simply saying, hey, what's in this bill that I need to care about, which it should answer with another question rather than with an answer. Yeah, I mean, Heisen did say that training for the use of AI and the responsible use of AI is going to be critical for DHS and not just this 15-person cadre, but you know all 200,000 plus 260,000 employees who work across DHS, they're going to need some level of introduction and training on these tools to use them properly, responsibly, and, and probably in a way that actually helps them. 
Yes, and so would DHS then get, I guess, let's call them bare metal versions of these algorithms like GPT-4, and there's a bunch of them out there, so that they could train it only with DHS data instead of having it come in with the world's data, which can produce all kinds of oddball stuff. That remains to be seen how exactly DHS is going to be procuring tools, large language models specifically, to train it on their own data. Right now, their policy allows only for the use of commercial Gen AI tools using non-DHS data. So, of course, some of those more high-impact, sensitive missions with sensitive data, they're going to have to work out how they're going to actually use these models for those. All right. Well, good luck to them. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, identification of long-lost military service members gets a boost from some new science. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. DNA has long been used to identify human remains, no less at the identification lab operated by the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Now some new scientific methods have emerged called next-gen sequencing. With what that is and how it helps, we turn to the DNA Operations Director at the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, Tim McMahon. Dr. McMahon, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Tom. And just what is the connection between the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, where you run the DNA operations, and the POW-MIA accounting agency? So the connection is a partnership, and this partnership goes back to 1991. The DPAA, or the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency, and its predecessors have been around since going back to 1972, when they were the Central Identification Lab in Thailand and in Vietnam recovering And in 1984, geopolitical thaw between President Reagan and Vietnam, Vietnam unilaterally turned over some unknown service members from Vietnam. In 1991, with the advancements progressing into DNA technology, basically our ability to Xerox copy DNA, so to make millions and millions of copies, which was developed in 1987, that allowed DNA to transition into the forensic field for human remains identification. In 1991, we used what was called mitochondrial DNA, and this is DNA that comes from your mother, so we can trace you back through your maternal side. We were able to assist in the identification of a Vietnam unknown. Additionally, in 1991, at the end of Operation Desert Storm, there were a number of U.S. service members who could not be identified, and DNA had to be used to identify those. So basically, 1991 is what solidified DNA to be used in both current day operations and to assist with the identification of our past accounting service members. Within DOD, the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System is mandated to determine the cause and manner of death of any service member in a current theater of operation. This includes our highly talented doctors, the forensic pathologists, our medical legal death investigators. Our Division of Forensic Toxicology determines if there's a toxicological, and then there's the DNA lab or the Armed Forces DNA Identification Lab. So when you think about DNA and you look back at World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, DNA wasn't even thought about or identified until 1953 when the armistice for Korea was signed. Our ability to Google Translate DNA, that is to sequence DNA and determine how it reads, 
really didn't come about till 1976, so at the end of the Vietnam conflict. So we don't have any direct references, meaning that service member who died, I don't have a direct reference. But in 1992, we started collecting a DNA blood reference card for all active duty reserve and National Guard service members. And because of that, from Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom, there are no unknown military service members. So therefore, you don't need reference DNA from someone's family member, their mother or close relative. You can identify it in the DNA itself. Absolutely. So, for example, Tom, if you were a service member, I would have your card. If you passed away, I could pull that card and I have a direct reference. You transitioned into the next part, which is a great thing, is to assist. So the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency is its own agency. They are mandated with the recovery and identification of all of our World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Cold War, and El Dorado Canyon, which is the bombing of Libya, the missing from those wars. To do that, for us to support them, we do all of the DNA testing for human remains for all of DOD. So the DPAA will go and recover remains from World War II. They can go into Papua New Guinea. They can recover a downed airplane. They will then take it to their laboratories where they do their forensics anthropology, the forensics odontology, which is a big word for looking at dental, the teeth, and they will look at stature and things like that. We're speaking with Dr. Tim McMahon. He's director of DNA operations at the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. So there's this something coming in new, next-gen sequencing. Can this help with some of the very old remains where it's pretty safe to say there are no relatives living anymore? Yes, the next-generation sequencing is actually twofold. We developed the first method for forensics in 2016, and it was designed to work with what we call chemically treated samples. So at the end of the Korean War, there were about 4,000 sets of remains turned over to the United States. About 862 of those could not be identified. They wanted to preserve them to keep our heroes in the best state. So they embalmed them. Well, we know now that that's the worst you could do to DNA. It took us 16 years in science to catch up and we were able to do next generation sequencing but that was just a sequence of the mitochondrial genome. What do we do when we have a service member? The only living relative is a paternal niece. So through the service member's brother, the niece. That doesn't have any current testing method for it. So we have developed what we call a single nucleotide polymorphism test. If you're following the news, it's basically the same thing that Ancestry.com and 23andMe do and that investigative genetic genealogy. But we made it to work with highly degraded DNA. And so that now will allow us to assist with the identification of individuals who previously did not have what we call a viable family reference. The other option, potentially, if if it works down and we find out that the missing service member was adopted, then we may be able to use the genetic DNA sequence, we call it, from the bone to potentially search one of the searchable databases and have a genealogist help us find a viable reference. Is there a large inventory, therefore, of missing but found service members that are unidentified that are either embalmed, as you mentioned, there are still some of them, I suppose, and then what about new ones that might come in, which you would not embalm, but if it's from the Vietnam or World War II, there's nothing to embalm. It would be bones. 
So we work typically in bones on our past accounting side, and that's to support the DPAA or Defense PWMI Accounting Agency. There are, if you look across the wars, there were about 72,000 missing from World War II. The DPAA thinks that there's about 36 to 38,000 of those that are recoverable. And then there were initially 8,100 missing from Korea. We're down to about 7,500. We've identified over 600. And then Vietnam, we're at about 1,500 that need to be recovered and identified. So to answer your question, inherently, if they go into a country and find them where they crashed or died, even though those bones have been in the field for 60, 70, 80 years, we actually have methods that make them work very well. To answer your question about are there remains in the lab, we are always working new cases through either recoveries, the DPA going out and doing field recoveries, or they will disinter unknowns from American Battle Monument cemeteries. For example, the Cabanatuan prison camp from World War II in the Philippines, in a 48-hour period, the Japanese allowed the prisoners of war, anyone who died, to bury everyone in one grave. So there's a thousand graves there with multiple people. So we're working to disinter and ID those. The tests that we do, we report out about 300 tests a month. We're looking to do close to 4,000 of those a year. And that led to supporting 162 new identifications last year. So this is really painstaking work, isn't it? It is. Unlike your state and local crime lab or my current day operation lab, where we have such fresh new samples and there we process it once. We take the unknown sample, we do the short tandem repeat test, we take the card, we do it, they match, you're done. Because of the damage, we actually have to do everything in duplicates. So different scientists do it, the two answers have to match, and then we will search our database. That's an important aspect is since 1992, with the help of our service casualty offices for Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines, they're the belly buttons to the families. They've actually collected family references for us, and we've created this database. So for the original 8,100 missing from the Korean War, I have references for 92% of those. That's why we can support those identifications. Wow. So the World War II ones could remain then forever unknown because there's just no cross-reference. Well, that's really one of the biggest misconceptions out there. Set us right. Um, yeah. So you would think about that when you hear in the news, the greatest generation, World War, you know, the World War II, we're losing a number of vets per day. But because we use lineage markers, meaning that, Tom, if you were missing and you had a brother, a sister, or your maternal aunt had kids, I can use them as references to help assist in the identification of you. And so we can go back. The, the farthest I've ever seen that we've made an ID with, is with a great, 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 great. So a seven great niece to a Vietnam unknown. So we, believe it or not. There's been that been enough generations in that family to have such a thing. Yeah, yeah. They marry um, young in that family. <laughs> exactly. But let's take Tarawa, for instance. The Battle of Tarawa, there are a little over, and, and my numbers are close, a little over 489 missing Marines. For those 489 missing Marines, I have references currently on hand for 85% of them. So the reason is, is it's kind of like your toolbox. You know, when I go into my toolbox, I have seven or eight different size screwdrivers because the screws are all different size. So the more screwdrivers I have, 
the more successful I'm going to be in fixing what I need to do. So for us, we utilize every DNA test that's available as well as develop our new ones. And that gives us the breadth of the ability to use multiple lines of references. And it comes down to when you think about criminal forensics, you're asking who against the world's population committed that crime. So you need that direct reference. But when you're dealing with a missing persons like we are, we can utilize lineage markers, we can utilize SNPs, we can utilize everything. And that opens up the pool of references for us. Right. So the essential new development in recent times then is the ability to identify someone from other than their mother's DNA, basically. Right. The the beauty of it is the test that we did, that new test you're talking about, that turns every reference that I've collected since 1992 into a nuclear reference. So it doesn't invalidate the mother's reference that I collected back in 1992. I don't have to go out and get a new reference. I get to use her still to identify her missing son. And so that's the beauty of it is, is we don't have to go out and recollect all of our references. The new method allows us to use all the references we already collected, but just in multiple forms now. And when doing this type of work, I imagine it occurs to you and the people you work with and the people that work in your division consider this sacred work. We do. And I'll give you an idea. So, Tom, we have to work in the blind, we call it. So we don't want to have any cognitive bias. So when a sample comes to us, it comes in with a unique case number. However, when that individual is identified, that service member is identified, we actually put the identification notice on our board in our hallway, and we have a big United States map. And then a pin goes in that service member's hometown. So they may come in unknown, but they leave as an identified hero. And that's how we tie our people to the mission. And they love it. It's sacred for them to do that. Tim McMahon is director of the DNA operations at the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, two new proposed buying rules from the Pentagon have contractors on edge. But first, fresh whistleblower protection legislation stalls amid congressional chaos. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Whistleblower protection legislation often has bipartisan support, yet it seems to take forever. Now a bill to extend federal protections to contractors was supposed to get marked up in January in the House Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, but now it's sidelined. We get more now from the Policy Council at the Project on Government Oversight, Joe Spielberger. Joe, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Tom. And this new bill, then, is pretty significant. Let's talk about the bill itself. What does it purport to do, and and why does it matter in the pantheon of whistleblower issues? So the Expanding Whistleblower Protections for Contractors Act is a bipartisan bill. It was sponsored by Senators Gary Peters and Mike Braun, and it's been heavily negotiated to have strong bipartisan consensus. It's really a common-sense bill that simply updates the laws and closes some of the loopholes that are barriers to people coming forward to expose misconduct. So some of the provisions are that it would provide enhanced protections for whistleblowers who challenge misspending that occurs internationally. 
It explicitly protects those who refuse to violate the law, and it empowers inspectors general to seek discipline against government actors who retaliate against contractor whistleblowers. And this is an especially critical time for Congress to make these protections in the midst of a surge of new federal spending. For instance, the Justice Department's Inspector General Michael Horowitz has estimated conservatively that just with regard to COVID spending, that there were maybe up to $100 billion in fraud in that spending alone. And that's a huge amount of taxpayer money that the government has either lost or has to try to reclaim. Back in 2009, when Congress passed the $800 billion stimulus, they very wisely chose to update contractor whistleblower laws at that time to create what were then considered to be best practices. But as all laws need to be updated and maintained, unfortunately, Congress has allowed these laws to languish so that they're not providing as much protection as they should. So what specific protections then would contractor whistleblowers have? Maybe there's two contexts here. One, they are blowing the whistle to the government or they're blowing the whistle to their own company management. We're not talking about major reforms here. We're really just talking about closing some of those loopholes that really act as a barrier and have this chilling effect that prevent people from being able to come forward. So we just want to make sure that these laws are operating as Congress intends to make sure that there is accountability for taxpayer funds. But as it stands now, a corporate whistleblower is protected from retaliation and from losing their job if they report something to the government? They have limited protections, but as we've seen, they're really not doing a strong enough job of ensuring that whistleblowers have safe avenues to be able to come forward. And so this is just simply updating those laws so we can keep up with those best trends and closing those loopholes again, for example, with regards to spending and misspending that occurs overseas. That's just one example of where there just needs to be an update to provide better protections in those situations. Because the uh, government whistleblower protections, those have been updated, right, in recent years. It really depends on you know what context we're talking about. One of the challenges with whistleblower laws are that it's really a patchwork of different laws across the federal government. And so it's really challenging when we do see smaller improvements in different areas that protect small subsections of whistleblowers, while other employees and contractors are really left out to dry. And so, you know, unfortunately, we're in a situation where it's really hard to make those major changes across the board that we fundamentally need. And so, you know, we're, we're just really trying to do what we can for the employees and the contractors that we're able to help better protect. We're speaking with Joe Spielberger. He's policy counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. And what then is the status in Congress? There was supposed to be a markup. Congress is sort of enmeshed in a lot of other things, like going around in circles, you might say. And so what happened and what are the prospects for this latest bill? This latest bill was scheduled to be marked up by the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, they had to recess before considering the bill. However, Chairman Peters stated that he does expect to return to consider the bill in committee. So we are hoping to see it back on the committee's calendar very soon, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And is this something the House will throw away because the Senate passed it or is there House support here, too? 
That's a great question. Most of our advocacy effort has been on the Senate side, but we are confident that this bill will get strong bipartisan consensus. As I mentioned, it's been negotiated very heavily, and so we're optimistic that, especially as the Senate considers it and hopefully brings it to the floor to pass, that there will be similar bipartisan support on the House side as well. And you mentioned overseas spending, and we've seen, you know, the uh, special inspectors general for Afghanistan and earlier Iraq reconstruction found just endless lurid reports of overspending and bad construction and you name it. And one of the objections to support for Ukraine coming from some members of the House is that there is a lack of accountability. They would like to have a special inspector general for Ukraine spending. And Lord knows there's probably plenty of potential for that. Could this whistleblower bill help with protection of people that might blow the whistle on misspending or overspending with respect to the Ukraine aid that could flow there beyond what already has? Absolutely. It's a really great point. And again, this is one reason why timely piece of legislation as we're in the midst of these really high stakes negotiations about aid to Ukraine, about aid to Israel, and whatever funding flows in that direction can be seen as very ripe for fraud and misspending. And so it's absolutely vital that as we are committing to new spending, that there are safeguards in place so that we can make sure that we keep fraud at a minimal level and that that funding is spent appropriately and how Congress intends. Joe Spielberger is policy counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll keep an eye on that legislation. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the bill at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, two new proposed buying rules from the Pentagon have contractors on edge. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Contractors are wary of the latest proposed rule giving DOD access to their IT systems. It's part of an effort to improve cybersecurity with incident reporting and information sharing. Another rule would impose new requirements on contractors' unclassified systems. Reaction now from the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, these rules are just coming out one after another. They are FAR rules, which means they will affect procurements and DOD really getting deep into the knickers of contractors' systems. That's exactly right, Tom, and thanks again for having me. We've seen a flurry of cyber-related and information system-related proposed rules coming out. And these two rules that you highlighted, you know, we had a lengthy time to comment on them. And I would highlight also that it's not just the Department of Defense. These are FAR Council rules, so they're applicable government-wide. And so it's not just DOD. It is the whole of government. And in some cases, as a previous guest on your show had discussed, it could give Department of Homeland Security and the FBI access to your system and what the government is calling full access, which means if there's an incident, go into your system and investigate, including parts of your contractor system that are not dedicated to government work. So it really, in our view, is ripe for uh, correction and amendment in terms of when we go into final rulemaking, because it is really overstepping on the government's part. Sounds like you'd have to designate someone from the government to have administrative privileges on your system. 
It does sound a bit like that. The incident reporting piece is something that we've discussed at length with both our member companies as well as with the government about, you know, what is an appropriate time frame once you have a cyber incursion, uh, how do you report it, et cetera, and to whom. These two rules do go a bit far in terms of not offering uh, live actions to, to government contractors. If you have a government person with admin privileges or not going into your system and something happens as a result of that access, we believe federal contractors should be not held liable for that. I can see the speeches now. We have all these unelected sysadmins coming in and <laughs> messing with our <laughs> systems. Uh, anyway, we, we won't go there on that one. So what have you proposed specifically to modify it should they decide to take your comments in? Well, for the first case that you mentioned, which is on cyber threat and incident reporting and information sharing, we've talked a lot about definitional changes. What does full access mean? And we'd really like to see the government limit it to contractor systems that are performing government work, not the whole enterprise system. We're also talking a bit about protection of what is called government data or government-related data. You know, A lot of companies have trade secrets, have pricing models, have sensitive information on their systems. And one of the rules does go in to say, you know, if it is on a system that performs government work, that is government-related data. That's an issue in terms of intellectual property, and it's an issue in terms of privacy. Yeah, it sounds like it's an issue in terms of law, even. You know, there are existing clauses out there that do protect intellectual property and the contractor's right to own the data that it creates. We believe that the government is trying to get at the use of third-party data, meaning the government holds a license for another company's information, and they're lending it to the contractor performing the work. Therefore, it should have protections because the government is facilitating access to that data. We don't argue about that, but we do think that if you are a contractor and you are creating data and you have access to the data that you yourself own, it shouldn't automatically be transferred to the government. And anyway, if this is all in a cybersecurity related context, maybe they should have a rule or the rule should limit the government access simply to your logs for analysis to understand what might have happened in an incident. I think that's exactly right. And to the extent that an incident is of concern to the contractor itself, you know, we don't want to presume that the contractor doesn't care when there's been a cyber incursion. They care very, very deeply about this. So understanding what happened and doing the forensics on it and then preventing similar incursions in the future is critical. And so what we believe and we've said in our comments is that, you know, the government needs to talk to the industrial partners about intellectual property, trade secrets, litigation liabilities, and claims against the federal government in the cyber realm. And as I mentioned, there's been a flurry of cyber-related proposed rules, and we do think it's wise of the government to try to harmonize those. Again, the devil is in the details, and if you make a definition in one proposed rule in one way and it has a different definition in another proposed rule, there's a lot of cracks through which you could fall. Well, they're certainly flooding the zone. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And the other one rule that you're talking about, too, is the standardizing cybersecurity requirements for unclassified federal information systems would impose rules on what your system should look like, how they're configured. You've got some issues there, too. It's very similar to what we have to the other rule. And I don't know if this was by design, but the comments were due on both on the same day. So these are very, very fresh in my mind as our comments are trying to mutually reinforce each other. And part of it is, again, comes down to definitions. How do they define full access? How do they define government data and government-related data? We are concerned that if they try to put this clause or this set of clauses in every contract, including things for commercial off-the-shelf items, 
it's a little bit, again, flooding the zone. I like that phrase that you use, Tom, because there are certain contracts where this kind of information or this kind of rule should be applied and others where it just doesn't make sense. And one area where some of our members highlighted a real concern is if you are a company that has several government contracts and you have one security incident on your system, what are they going to investigate? Which was considered the federal information system and how do they dive into that? You know, it's a concern that many members had about the onerous reporting requirement and do they have to report for every single contract? Are they all considered federal information systems? And so again, the devil is in the details. We're working through this and we hope to see some of these changes in the final rule. And one more thing I wanted to ask you about is that the member companies are scratching their heads and turning to the council for what to expect in the upcoming presidential election. I can just hear them now. Stephanie, what's going to happen if it's Trump or Biden? You know, And so it's going to be Trump or Biden from the looks of it. So never have we been able to narrow it down so early, it seems. You know, Tom, that's exactly the point that I make to member companies. We've had several companies come and say, all right, so look in your crystal ball and see what's going to happen in terms of contract spend and, and what the budgets are going to look like. And historically, PSC has looked at presidential elections closer to the actual general election. But it seems that the primary system has already picked winners and losers here, at least so far. It seems that the candidates are predetermined. And so we can look into the crystal ball a little bit. You know, President Biden has signed out more than 130 executive orders. Some of them will be rescinded under a different president if that happens. So we're trying to do a quick analysis of what policy issues might stick and what might go by the wayside under a potential Republican president. And so we're looking at that. We're also analyzing the transition from 2016 to 2017 to see what happened to budget requests and the contract spending. We're also going way back into, well, it's not technically way back to the origin of our country, but it is back to the Obama administration, right, with the two terms of under a Democratic president and what happened with contract spending there. You know, it is... I hate to use the word unprecedented because it's been hyped up over the last four years. Everything seems to be unprecedented. But we do have an opportunity here to do some analysis about presidential politics earlier in the cycle than we have in the past. Well, things may not be unprecedented right now, but they've never happened before. So that's, we can put it that way. Yeah, I think that's true. I think also we talked about the flurry of cyber-related activities. There have been a lot of proposed rules coming out in recent months, and that's not unusual in this part of a presidential term because everything that was put in place in the first year is finally hitting rulemaking now. And I would mention that in the first six weeks here in 2024, PSC has commented on eight proposed rules or other opportunities to comment and that is probably twice the pace that we usually go. So eight rules in six weeks means that we're all going to be very, very busy at PSC going forward. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Treasury Department and the IRS are calling on teleworking employees, some of them anyway, to return to the office for half of their workdays, starting in a few months. The policy only applies to Treasury and IRS non-bargaining unit employees, though. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel says it's the latest step in the Biden administration's goal of bringing back D.C. area federal employees into the office about 50 percent of the time. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. And when does this take place? Treasury and IRS 
50% of the office when, Jory? The date on the calendar that we're tracking is May the 5th, so a couple months from now. And it's going to impact, as you said, Tom, IRS executives, managers, non-bargaining unit employees with telework agreements, specifically in the national capital region. And the same goes for the larger treasury side of things. Uh, so this affects people at IRS headquarters, their massive new Carrollton Federal building in Maryland, and a couple of other offices in the greater D.C. metro area. This is all based on an email that we saw from Warfel to IRS employees last week. And one other caveat here, IRS employees that are part of the agency's remote work pilot, something looking at a longer term work from home arrangement that runs through June, and those employees are also not currently impacted by this return to office announcement. So they won't ask them to find an office to go to, in other words? At least for right now, they're not. And what is Treasury, what is IRS's reasoning here for getting people back 50% of the time, at least those that aren't in the bargaining unit? At some level, this is the order coming from the top. We've heard from the Biden administration for a number of months now that the priority is bringing people back in the D.C. metro area, just because there is such a high concentration of federal employees in D.C. and the surrounding area. But at one level, what we heard from the IRS specifically about the D.C. metro area is that it's a high concentration of the people who are setting policy for the agency. It's a high concentration of the executives. It's a high concentration of the senior professionals that really play a key role in the kind of big modernization work that's going on at the IRS. And one other thing that we heard from Werfel on this is that as the IRS is bringing in new employees and it's bringing in a lot of new employees, that it's really essential for them to have that kind of synergy with the agency and the people who are supervising them. And the National Treasury Employees Union, their members at IRS are not affected. What do they say about this or do they care one way or the other since it's not them? They definitely care about this, even though currently their employees are not affected by this. Werfel did say that they are going to sit down with NTU and see what kind of arrangement they can work out for bargaining unit employees. But a statement from Doreen Greenwald, she says that the IRS and Treasury are doubling down on an unwise guidance from the Office of Management and Budget to have more in-office days, uh, specifically, and this is a direct quote here, without compelling data or justification. And actually, NTU had sent over a copy of Treasury's own recent telework assessment that it gave to Congress. And in that assessment, Treasury found that there was no evidence that telework created a negative impact on retention, recruitment, or organizational performance, in some cases quite the opposite. And so NTU is really frustrated. They say that at a time when the IRS is trying to higher up, trying to keep people, they're really losing one of their best bargaining chips, which is workplace flexibility. And the IRS employees now that would be affected by the return policy, how much are they coming in at this point? Well, at this point, IRS is a particularly unique case when it comes to return to office because in a lot of cases, the IRS has already brought a lot of people back. They started back in the summer of 2020, back when they was dealing with this tsunami of paper, mail that was not getting opened. And so this has been a longer tail for the IRS than most people. Werfel recently told the House Ways and Means Committee that overall, the IRS is already basically meeting this 50% in-office goal. And here's what he told lawmakers. There is a government-wide standard out there in terms of where we stand today, what should be the percentage of in-office work versus remote work. The IRS is generally consistent with that government-wide standard. 
And of course, Congress is hot and cold over the IRS. Do they, any of the members have anything to say about these 50% plan that Werfel laid out? Lawmakers definitely made their thoughts known on this. This was a nearly four-hour hearing they had with Commissioner Werfel. We heard from a number of lawmakers, but this really typifies the kind of dynamic going on here. We heard from David Kustoff. He's a member of Congress, a Republican from Tennessee, and he was saying that a lot of his constituents still can't get the IRS on the phone, and he links return to office to that uh, inability to get people on the phone and says that they'd be able to answer more calls if more people were in the office. I would contend, respectfully, that not having employees in the office and having them work remotely presents challenges not only to your agency, but to the people that have to interact with it. And to that point, Werfel told Kustoff that, look, you're all invited to look at IRS campuses. The employees that need to be there are there. They're opening the mail. They're processing the tax returns during the tax filing season. All the stuff that is unique to being in person is being done. And then other lawmakers, they did raise a very good point that just last month, the IRS A former IRS contractor was sentenced to five years in prison because this contractor years ago leaked thousands of tax records, some of them belonging to former President Donald Trump, to the news media. And they said, well, this is something that could only happen because employees were working from home. Werfel pushes back against that characterization and says that whether employees are working from home or working in the office, the IRS is really hardening its uh, privacy and its data security efforts. There are steps that you can take to ensure appropriate security, whether the employee is in a skiff, in a non-skiff, or remote. And we have to make sure that we're securing, because there may be situations, whether it's a weather event or otherwise, or a pandemic, where we have to ensure the right level of security, regardless of where the employee is. And I don't think they're allowed to take paper out of there at home and process it. They can do online through a VPN or whatever they're using these days for the online electronic stuff, but paper can't leave and go home, is my understanding. That's right. Not only can they not take paper back, but they can't create new paper at home. A lot of the things that they're looking at, they're prohibited from printing at a home printer. And so trying to not leave that paper trail out there, trying to reduce the opportunities for PII out there. The IRS is really conscious about that, and they're really taking steps to not have a repeat of what they just saw. And the congressman is actually factually wrong on the idea that you can't answer the phone from home. Almost every major corporation that has a teleservice operation, and that's a lot of them, people are working from home because modern technology means you can have a call center that's virtual. The trafficking, the the lineup, the queue-ups, the callback, all that happens online. And I have been dealing with customer service people myself at corporations, and I've heard dogs barking. I said, you're teleworking. Yeah, she says, yeah. No difference from if they were in a call center. Yeah. Well, I think just to follow up on that, Tom, real important point, considering the IRS's customers, which is the entire U.S. population, they need folks answering the phones in every time zone, making sure that when the phones ring, someone's around to pick it up, regardless of what time it is, where. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com, where we have ongoing coverage of the great telework debate. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.